Hi, everyone, and welcome back to Gathering Ground, where with each new episode, a special guest and I, and this week it's two special guests and I, explore what it looks like to thrive in the nonprofit landscape. I'm Mary Morton, president of Morton Group, LLC. Morton Group is a national consulting firm that is based in Chicago and works with clients from coast to coast and everywhere in between. We work in four primary areas, organizational development, research, executive placements, and diversity, racial equity, and inclusion. Before we get started with our conversation today, I wanted to remind you that Gathering Ground can now be found on Apple Podcast, in addition to anywhere else you listen to podcasts. Just search Gathering Ground on iTunes to find us. Be sure to rate us and subscribe to get a notification whenever there's a new episode. I am so excited to welcome an amazing pair of sisters, and I mean sisters in every sense of the word, uh, to join us here today on Gathering Ground. We are pleased to be joined by Shahrazad and Salamisha Tillett. Shahrazad is the executive director and the photographer for A Long Walk Home. She received her BA in Child Development and Studio Arts from Tufts and has studied photography at Boston Museum School of Fine Arts and at Rutgers. She is currently pursuing her master's in art therapy at the School of the Art Institute in Chicago. She is a freelance photographer and has worked on numerous social documentary projects such as Children in Ghana, Body Image, The Last Trimester, Harlem World, and a project in progress on African-American women. Salamisha Tillett is a scholar, activist, social critic, and media personality, and is currently at Rutgers University, where she is the Henry Rutgers Professor of African American Studies and Creative Writing. She did her undergraduate work at the University of Pennsylvania, and her graduate work at Brown University, and her doctoral work at Harvard University. Her book, Sites of Slavery, Citizenship and Racial Democracy in the Post-Civil Rights Imagination examines how contemporary African-American artists, writers, and intellectuals remember antebellum slavery within post-civil rights America in order to challenge the ongoing exclusion of African-Americans from America's civic myths and to model a racially democratic future. She's appeared on numerous talk shows uh, as a commentator and as a critic, and I, of course, remember you very, very clearly from Saturday and Sunday mornings on MSNBC on Melissa Harris Perry's show. In 2003, the Tillett sisters co-founded A Long Walk Home, the only organization in the country that uses art therapy and the visual and performing arts to end violence against women and girls. A Long Walk Home partners with rape crisis centers, universities, high schools, and state coalitions to provide innovative and inclusive programs for underserved communities. Through their national and local programs, multimedia performances, summer and after-school youth institutes, campus trainings and workshops, A Long Walk Home has educated over 100,000 survivors and their allies to build safe communities and to end gender violence. Please welcome Shahrazad and Salamisha to Gathering Ground. How are you? Good. Thank you for joining us on Gathering Ground. Oh, thank you. So happy this could work out. Um, <laughs> so, so you know, we always like to start with hearing a little bit about your personal story. Mm-hmm. So tell us a little bit about your your upbringing. Uh, you grew up in Boston, and I understand you had parents who were inspired uh, by the movement, the Black Power movement. So tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, I guess I'll start. Salamisha, uh, <laughs> I'm the, the older sister, so I guess I came into the world first with, with our parents. Um, so we grew up in a couple of places. So we were born, both born in Boston, Massachusetts, and then we moved to Trinidad. Um, I was eight and Shahrazad was five. Uh, Trinidad and Tobago, that's the country that my father, our father is from. And then we moved back to New Jersey or back to New Jersey where my mother is from um, when I was like 11 and Cher was eight. I always kind of figure out the numbers there. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so we're children of the 70s uh, and our names, I think, reflect that. My name is Salamisha, which means a salam is um, Arabic for peace and Shah is um, Farsi for majestic. And my parents interpreted the me as black. So when I was a little kid, like they were like very clear that I should say that my name means peace, black, majestic. And then Shahrazad had the, I always thought had the cooler name. Mm-hmm. I'm very excited about my name now, but when, when I was a kid, cause she had a Z in her name. And so she, she could tell you the story about Shahrazad cause I think she's really come to embody its uh, meaning and legacy. Um, yeah. Shahrazad, you know, um, is, is a Farsi name, like you said, 
but uh, Shahrazad comes from Arabian Nights. Mm -hmm. And my mom yeah. read that as she was like a little girl, like that story. Um, but I think um, more importantly, it's like Shahrazad told a thousand and one stories mm -hmm. to like save her life and other women's lives. I think it's like Shahrazad's like ultimate feminist, but also how she's, she told stories. And, and so I think of myself as a storyteller through my art, but also like helping other people tell their stories as a, as a healer and a co-founder of a long walk home. Mm -hmm. Nice. Yeah. Well, they're very lyrical and beautiful names. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, and it really Appearance. fits nicely. I know you, you're, you know, you do a lot of poetry and um, it fits so, so well. So where did you go in different directions? Because you mm -hmm. went into the Academy, mm -hmm. correct? And then you studied child development and studio art. And how did your interests come about in those areas? Yeah, I guess because we literally grew up in the same household. Um, we learned early on the power of art to um, make a difference, to be able to tell your own story, to advocate for yourself and other people, um, and to really bring communities um, and collectives together. So our mother is a musician, um, and, uh, we like heard the sounds of like the seventies, as we talked about earlier with like funk and soul and jazz, um, and R and B. And then we're also of like the hip hop generation where we saw like people using music and using dance and using a uh, visual art to kind of protest the society that we're in. So I think like, and well, I guess our upbringing is where we come together and then we can talk about how we kind of came back together with a long walk home. Um, but I went to college, I went to the university of Pennsylvania, um, in the mid 90s, early nineties in 1992. And I always say that that senior year of high school, right before I went to Penn was really deeply transformative and radicalizing for me. The summer before I read three books, uh, Alice Walker's the color purple, Tony Morrison's the bluest eye and Malcolm X and Alex Haley's The Autobiography of Malcolm X. So I found black power um, and black feminism at the same moment. Uh, though we grew up with that, I think this was me finding it for myself. And then my senior year in high school, two monumental events happened in the nation. One uh, that fall was the Clarence Thomas uh, nomination hearings. And so seeing Anita Hill come forward and testify that she had been sexually harassed by him was one form of like breaking silence. And then my the spring of my senior year was the Rodney King, uh, the, the trial of the four LA police officers, them being found not guilty, and then the rebellion kind of breaking out in LA. So I went to college kind of deeply. I thought I was going to be a lawyer at first. And then I didn't know that you could like literally read books for a living and write about it. Like I didn't know literary <laughs> criticism existed as like an actual profession, but I soon found out that it was possible. Um, and then I quickly shifted from thinking that I wanted to go into law and become a lawyer to becoming a teacher and then an academic where I could write and read African-American literature. And uh, I guess quickly in grad school, I went to Harvard for my PhD in American studies. And it, I switched kind of from literature to like cultural studies, uh, broadly speaking. And so art and dance and um, uh, music. So I started thinking about art as a form of uh, study, but also art as a form of protest. And I think that's how Cher and I really kind of come together in lots of ways. But that art is truly like the thing that we believe is not only a catalyst for change, but also it can be a kind of um, a bridge between communities and between constituencies, between organizers and policymakers, between victims um, and survivors um, and their allies. So, Lovely. Yeah. And, and yeah. what was your path? Um, well, it's so, somewhat similar. Um, I do, um, just to add, I think I, we grew up in a home with enormous pride in our culture, right? I just remember, like, I mean, it's the how Samish described, like, a home, I also images of art. Um, my mom collected art and then um, really surrounded us with art. And my dad had enormous pride in terms of being Trinidadian and living there. But, like, even when we came back to the United States, we would follow and get, like, the cultural experiences as much as we could. We would go to local carnival um, festivals in the United States and just kind of follow that along. My earliest kind of moments, um, I used to write poetry as an adolescent. Um, and my mom, any artistic thing that we would do would be like, oh, let's show that off. So my mom was singing in jazz clubs as I was growing up. And she would like, 
I would be like the the set in between the other sets, like in, in jazz clubs in New York City, and um, she would use to show off my jazz. So I, I, I think I grew up with not only like enormous pride of the culture, but like a, a reward and a love for artistic experiences. Um, and then I think those things kind of merged. Um, I always loved children. I was very much on the path of wanting to be a child psychologist, like in uh, high school it was like, pediatrician than child psychologist. I was very focused about like this love of children at a very young age, would volunteer at um, every summer I would teach art to kids at boys and girls clubs or just really like, I mean, the path was kind of really focused at a very young age. My mom's partner was very abusive to my mom. And I think uh, those things kind of started shifting as Salma, she talked about Malcolm X, uh, the domestic violence household, um, started to shift what I kind of saw as as what I wanted to give back to. And so my senior year in high school, I volunteered at a domestic violence shelter um, in Newark, New Jersey. And I used to teach art to the children there. And so I think that kind of became my way of bridging some of the artistic things, like the path of like art was always like my care too. I would take art classes, but like what we grew up with, but also what, what I wanted to kind of start focusing on. That's really interesting. I um, have similar memories from my my uh, mother in particular, who, again, this idea of the activist mm-hmm. in the community yeah. and artwork. And I have some beautiful artwork in my home mm-hmm. that I inherited from my mother. Mm-hmm. Um, so clearly art has been a theme running mm-hmm. through your, your work for a long time. So you know that stories have the power to change hearts and minds. Can you talk about stories of a rape survivor? And how did you um, come up with the idea uh, to turn this into a powerful performance piece. So um, I was sexually assaulted um, in college. I was sexually assaulted twice. So my first year of college um, by a young man that I was dating. And then two years later, I went on a study abroad program to Nairobi, Kenya. And I was sexually assaulted there by like uh, someone I didn't know that well. So someone not someone I was dating, but someone I knew. Um, the experience I had my first year of college, I remember going to a therapist on campus and the woman was like, why do you think this was assault? And I froze because I didn't really know if it was or it wasn't. I just knew that my body was having particular responses to touch. And I didn't know if, um, you know, the definition of rape that I had been working with before that was like stranger, um, someone lurking in the bushes, not someone that you could be intimately acquainted with. Um, and so I kind of didn't deal with it. And then when I was sexually assaulted, um, in Kenya, I came back to the United States um, a month later, uh, and I knew there was no way I could kind of rationalize or or tell myself it wasn't rape. It I was clearly rape, and it was in a situation where I was af- afraid for my life. And so I was fortunate, actually, to be roommates with a woman who suggested I go to um, an experimental program in Philadelphia at the time, which um, worked with rape survivors and akin to how uh, people had been working with war veterans, uh, treating PTSD. So this was like the early uh, program in terms of psychotherapy to to understand that rape victims may be suffering from PTSD. And Edna Foa uh, was the therapist who was leading this program. So I would do this like once a week. I would leave mm-hmm. campus and go to another part of Philadelphia, um, literally meeting, taking a bus from the veterans hospital to a hospital in, uh, in Philadelphia, another hospital in Philadelphia, and just tell my story over and over and over again to these two therapists. And so I think, and I always say this, like my ability to tell my st- story with kind of coherency um, and with a kind of um, ownership is a re- real result of just doing intensive therapy where I had to tell my story over and over again so I could understand the difference between the past trauma and what I was living in the present. So so I then I finished that program and I was like, oh, I'm healed and not really. You still have to, years of, of therapy and years of um, help were, were needed in my case. And so um, and that was in 1995. I was sexually assaulted in Kenya. In 1996, I was engaged in a therapy program, graduated from Penn and then went to Brown University for a master's in education and literally had a breakdown. I mean, I graduated and if that was, you wouldn't know, but I, but I did. And that's when I told Shahrazad um, over Thanksgiving that um, mm. I'd been sexually assaulted in, in Kenya. Mm. Um, and eventually I started dealing with the kind of 
cumulative effect of being sexually assaulted my freshman year. And so I spent the summer of 97 to 98 just focused on healing. And I got to want to give a plug to um, rape crisis centers that are uh, that charge either no cost or minimal cost mm-hmm. to other patients because I really, really um, found my voice. But also I think they saved my life. And I went to Women to Organize Against Rape. That's what it was called in Philadelphia. And it was an individual therapy. I know therapy. that organization. You know that organization? Mm-hmm. Individual Absolutely. therapy and group therapy twice a week for um, maybe six months. And then I published my story in the feminist newspaper at Penn and so that was the beginning. So I used to listen to Tracy Chapman's uh, album, New Beginnings, and there's a song or at least a line from a song called Hollow Body, Skin and Bone. And so I have this very detailed testimony of my experience with rape in the campus newspaper. It was called Generation XX because we're Generation XX and there's a feminist newspaper. So that was me first telling my story. And then Shahrazad was spending the summer with me. So, oh. Yeah. So when Salmisha told me um, in 1997, like that Thanksgiving, um, I just remember, you know, we're very close. We're sisters um, and we've traveled in different spaces. And so I, I just, how did I not know that, you know? Um, and so I, my feelings of, of sadness, um, rage of, like, how could this happen? How could this happen multiple times? How could this happen and I not know? Mm-hmm. The feelings of guilt um, and powerlessness, you know? And I just didn't know what should be my next step, you know? Um, how could I help her in some kind of way uh, to what she was experiencing? Like, you know, how could I now kind of step up, you know? I feel like our roles have been, like, her kind of been, you know, caring for me a lot, but how could I... Uh, be there for her. And, um, you know, it was, it took me a while. I mean, I, I spent a summer with her uh, that following year and I got to witness her healing. And kind of through this new lens, I got to witness um, what she was talking about, like this Tracy Chapman playing that again and again. I got to um, see her kind of physically go to group therapy and individual therapy. I, I saw all these stickies around her room, or like, you know, you are beautiful, erase negative thoughts, um, you know. And so I was just kind of awe of that, of awe of like someone, like this, despite what has happened, despite someone really trying to destroy her, um, everything that was great, uh, like she's putting and pushing the pieces back. And so that kind of birthed um, me documenting her, her healing process. Uh, it was my second photography class ever. And I, I decided that some year or whatever, I was at Tufts University, decided to like just focus on photography. And to uh, and so I think also proximity of us um, really worked out. Like I was at in Boston and then I moved to uh, Rutgers, for a semester just to focus on photography. And Salmi, she was in Philadelphia at the time. And I got to, um, I put her fo- a photograph of her and I put that testimony that she published, um, Hollow Bones, Skin and Bones, um, the testimony that she published at UPenn about her, her testimony in my class. And my teacher, um, who is a documentary photographer, Steve Hart, was like, you need to focus on that this whole semester. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, he, he was really at like... Cr- he was a visiting professor at the time, too. Um, he was just really encouraging the class to kind of go deep with their work and to kind of use this as an outlet to kind of tell our stories, to use a camera as a way to hug, use the camera as a way to speak the unspeakable. And so I went every two weeks and, like, started to photograph. I asked Alamisha if I could photograph her healing, and naively she said, sure. Uh, she wasn't a person who... Like the camera, like even her prom pictures are like frowns, you know. Um, and uh, we created this really intimate path together. She shared um, things that no one shared. Like I went to therapy. Like it gave me access in a way I couldn't at the time with words, you know. Like I really wanted to be there, but I also wanted to honor. Like, and I think that's like the the what source is really about. It's like this love letter to survivors. It's a love letter to Salamisha. Um, and that, and I had to turn the camera towards myself. I took a series of self-portraits um, to be like, well, as a significant other, how has this really impacted? I didn't realize like that I was like, oh, I'm just going to document my sister. And then I realized I then suffered from like uh, 
am I next? You know, uh, my mom is a survivor and my sister is a survivor. And so I kind of had like triggers and nightmares and, and, had, and that allowed me to go to therapy myself and to really um, do this work, I think, that allowed me to be more whole today still to help so many other survivors, you know. And so I think SOAR is what SOARS became. Um, I showed that these photographs in our my class and Salamisha came to that class um, and other students came out and told, started telling their stories and I saw the power of my art to kind of uh, ignite and help people. And that same photographer teacher, uh, Steve Hart, was like, you need to continue this. And so we then lived together for the first time, she was starting at Harvard in my last year at Tufts University. And so I got to like really even continue it even more in depth. And we decided if we're going to do this, um, we should transform into a multimedia performance that photography alone could not tell the story of, of what it means to survive sexual assault. She was a writer. She was listening to music. A mom, you know, like there's this several inf uh, influences. Um, and so I thought like it had to take another form. It had to take a performance kind of forms for people to really experience what it meant to survive sexual violence. And where are all those photographs now that you took? <laughs> no, we have them. We did the perform. We did a performance a couple of weeks ago here in uh, Chicago, actually. Oh, so you still use them? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I just yeah. wondered if they were part of the beginning, and then you've no, you put them I mean, away, but you continue to use them. Well, we've edited. I mean, there's probably hundreds that I I don't even know of. But in terms of the actual thousands, performance, yeah. thousands apparently. <laughs> that, okay. In terms years. of the actual performance, um, we kind of think of it as like a child of uh, for color Tizaki Shange's mm -hmm. for colored girls. Yes. And to seeing it again, us doing it recently uh, here um, in in at, at Oak Park High School. Um, but also, I just saw Shange's uh, play on on. Um, Did you see it in New the York? Public, yeah. Oh, and I was I like, wanted to see that. Yeah. No, just I'm sure it'll get there. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, oh, we really are like her children. Like it was just interesting to see the two. Um, uh -huh. Though I think ours is very specific on obviously the transforming one's uh, self from being a, a rape victim to what it means to survive. But uh, we have a cast of women who who tell my story as they're telling their own stories. Like mm -hmm. a lot of, uh, I would say everyone in our cast is either a primary or um, secondary victim of gender-based violence. And so um, just to have them speak words that I wrote in my journal, like or I wrote for the show itself, mm -hmm. um, dance the music that I listened to, or, and dance and perform to the Shahrazad's very intimate photographs is pretty just extraordinary for any survivor, I think, in the audience to understand the power of our healing. I always say that, you know, rape is, is something something that's imposed, uh, forced on us um, as victims. And so how we choose to heal, um, again, it's a position that you're unfairly put into to have to heal from a trauma um, that you didn't choose and that you in no way wanted. Um, but how one heals is how perhaps one way of gaining power. And, and, and for me, I think also a form of justice, um, cause I'd gone through the, the legal process as well and, um, was unable to have any really formal redress there, but through, uh, working in, uh, in this world, I guess, of, um, this movement, and then also working with so many survivors has really been a deeply transformative and healing process for me. So how did all of this lead to a long walk home? Yes, there's a lot of naive things here, but hmm. so we had uh, this performance and we were students and then suddenly uh, she wasn't a student anymore and we were being invited to perform Story of Rape Survivor at various universities. And so we were very in our early 20s and this is again before Me Too, before the college sexual assault reform movement, um, inheritors of a legacy of like Maya Angelou and like it's Alice Walker, Toni Morrison, Oprah Winfrey had broken silence around sexual assault, but still focusing on healing. And so it really kind of organically began. Like we were like, okay, we have this idea. We want to institutionalize it. We have no so we idea. Can help more people. Yeah, we have no idea what mm -hmm. we're, we're doing. And uh, But let's become a nonprofit. And A Long Walk Home, the title of A Long Walk Home, the title of our organization is from a poem that I wrote um, about the journey home after being sexually assaulted in Kenya. And so Cher found oh, okay. that. Because that was one of my questions. Where did the name come from? And it was okay. The Walk Home, I think is the mm -hmm. name yeah. of the poem. Um, and then we created A Long Walk Home. So on one hand, it's like for any survivor who's experienced the, these forms of trauma, you know, that walk afterwards 
is really devastating. But then also, what does it mean to reclaim home? What does it mean to find a journey to self? What does it mean to, to engage in these like healing footsteps? So it has like a dual meaning, I guess, for us. All this stuff, we're so young. It's like we grew up in this movement, so we didn't really know then, obviously, what we know now. now. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So there's a lot we of things we recommend. probably we would do differently, um, but we've also been able to witness a movement unfold and people mm -hmm. start to catch up with the ideas and the concerns and the debates and the philosophy that we've been kind of having for the last, you know, 20 years or so. And so how did you develop the structure for how you carry out the work in a long walk home? Okay. I'm going to hand it over. Uh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Give me that one. Um, I mean, um, I mean, so I think there's one thing going from a student project than it going to a nonprofit organization. Source gave us a foundation that we needed, um, actually give us the national attention and understanding how to kind of, what this work looks like on a national level. But then we, we decided to do a new project um, called Girlfriends Leadership Institute. I think that's when Aloma Combs started to shift and look more like a traditional formats in terms of committees and boards. Um, we have already had a, a small working board already, but then we needed the capacity of um, a lot more people to do the work that we do with uh, the Girlfriends Leadership Institute in terms of foundation and uh, having a di diverse portfolio in, in that kind of way. Um, and so Girlfriends Leadership Institute is like a... Um, is our second program, but it, it's, it mimics the, the, the source per, per, performance where it's training um, particularly black girls on the West and South Side of Chicago to become artist activists. And all the lessons that we learned being on stage doing SOARS, kind of giving them back and grounding them in like black feminism and and for them to like end violence um, in their own communities and schools. So we're not just talking about sexual assault, we're talking about police violence, we're talking about domestic violence. And so they kind of helped us in terms of um, doing that, build like coalitions with organizations. We had to like do different structural things. Um, in this process of me becoming an artist to an executive director, I did like boot camps, um, executive boot camps and, and different leadership uh, programs to kind of, what are, what are those shifts that I need to do to become, um, uh, uh, to be really fully in this position as the executive director, to be a better leader for us all, you know, um, as well as the organization then had to do that structure too with a lot of um, organization and capacity building work. Well, I'm so happy to hear that you, yeah. you did professional development and leadership development because, as I'm sure you know so often, and this is part of the work we do at yeah. Morton Group is um, just people love the work, the art, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. And what about the structure, right? How yeah. do you carry that on? How yeah. do you share it with other people? And so often we see a disconnect. Mm -hmm. And uh, I do a lot of executive coaching and I'm always encouraging people to take advantage of uh, the boot camp. Um, I don't know which one you went to, but um, I'm on the faculty at Axelson Center for Nonprofit Management, the mm. three-day boot camp for CEOs and EDs. And it's it's really important. So you can have a well-rounded background and you can you can have a structure in place yeah. that can support the work right and reaching over a hundred thousand survivors and their allies uh since 2003 that's pretty extraordinary <laughs> and did you ever have this vision of it hmm. going on like this or when you developed the nonprofit was well we just want to share the story share these stories with more people did you think it would no i mean no i don't think so not originally because we were both like in 2003 we were i was in school a uh, full-time graduate student and shahrazad um was on her way to here to chicago the school of the art institute so i don't know i mean i really feel like i we were like called to do this work i know it's a little hokey sometimes to say out loud but yeah, I don't know if we knew. And we also we didn't know. We were like just plugging away. Like I know the work that you've done too. It's like you're like, you're like saying these issues matter. Like violence against sexual violence, domestic violence, like black girls and women's lives matter. Mm -hmm. And like no one was really hearing us for a very long time. I think black women and girls heard us. Absolutely. Uh, and some um, very progressive and very empathetic non-black girls and black women heard us. But it was really like very, very, very difficult. And then when you're talking about sexual assault as a black woman um, and your assailants are, have been uh, black men, it's a very difficult uh, conversation to have out loud. And so I think, uh, you know, that's the thing I'm like amazed, like we're still here kind of thing. Like we're still here and 
wow, like look how much has changed. Exactly. Um, That's what I was going to say, that the entire yeah. environment has changed at this point, which gives more space for these conversations yeah. and to highlight them and to dig. dig yeah, well, no, I agree. I want to say that even though we didn't know, I think we did a couple things like right from the beginnings of our foundation. So the first, I always, because I give this advice to people who want to, if they want to do nonprofit, even that discourage them because there's mm -hmm. so many nonprofits out there. So thank like, you for doing that. Yeah. Are you, do you want to do a project <laughs> or do you want to do, exactly. you know, um, exactly. <laughs> uh, but I think, you know, being at, we we use institutional spaces in a certain way, right? Like I use Tufts University, so I should use Harvard. We had a pro bono lawyer. We had a pro bono accountant from like the very beginning, right? We had like very little money in our bank. Uh, we did not pay ourselves actually until 2011. So Really? Yeah, well, yeah. I, don't, I don't get paid. Yeah, so. yeah. <laughs> yes. Well, yes. Um, but so we put that money back to the organization okay as I had other jobs to support this. I mean, I think this is important stories about, I think we keep to ourselves about what it means to be like this women of color led organization. Um, and how do we actually create the infrastructure for us to still be around um, and, and support the organization. I think I did see the impact because we did these performances where even our first performance ever was like full of people. We had to do like three shows back to back. And so we saw the power of art, like we could do 600 people in one space to talk about sexual violence, right? At a time where no one else was talking about it. So when we talk about those numbers, it's because we were able to grab lots of people all together who didn't have that visibility at their college campus, particularly women, uh, men of color, um, and talk about something like that. So we saw like, how our work, even if people did not know who we were, but the fact how we were doing with music and dance and poetry and visual arts could grab so many people to talk about something so difficult. And so from that very beginning, we would knew to collaborate with certain people on the ground, right, to get people into certain services or treatments or resources at their university. And so I think those are the things. So, like, I could think about it as an executive director, like, the foundations that we were doing, you know, we we did even capacity building in 2003 where we imagined what our future would be like. Yeah. Um, you know, even if Visioning it was... Yeah, yeah, just yeah. with co-founders, mm -hmm. like... But I guess I want to say, yeah. like, it's a plug for black feminism because yeah. I do think, like, mm -hmm. black feminism, which is a very, like, um, long-standing tradition here in the United States, but also globally, is, like, a prophetic tradition. So... Uh, I wrote a piece for the Times in March about black women organizers here in Chicago. It was an op-ed piece about like how black it. women are getting stuff done because they're grounded in this black feminist tradition. And what that means is like it's, you know, working across issues. So like when Sherazad talked about girlfriends addressing state violence, mm. interpersonal violence at the same time, like you're getting so many, you're hitting so many issues um, and you're working across so many different communities. So I think like the foundation, of course, like she's, Fully correct. Like we didn't. When I mean like we didn't know what we were going to become, it was more like if you look at Black feminist work now, or you look at it twenty years ago, it's where the nation will eventually go. But at the time, you may not always know mm -hmm. that like people will catch up with you because it doesn't always feel that way because you're already ahead of the curve. And so, just in terms of like the documentation of healing and using photography to kind of self-document this process before the age of selfies. Like now it seems like, oh yeah, like of course people document themselves all the time um, in their most traumatic or, or recovering. But in 2003, much less 1999, like Shahrazad had to look to other models. She had to look at how people documented surviving cancer, uh, how people uh, documented people living with HIV. There were actually no models of rape survivors healing, even though there were people uh, breaking silences in, in moments. So, Well, I think oh. that um, this also ties nicely into our, at least I want to segue to uh, just talk a little bit about your book and, and what was the impetus for your book? Because one of the things that I find is that we don't, many I would say younger women don't necessarily know the history. So when I, for instance, because I'm your child of the 70s, I'm a child of the 60s, and when I went into uh, Chicago Now here in, mm. in, in Chicago, the National Organization for Women, I didn't know, even though I considered myself a feminist, I mean, I read 
yeah. Miss Magazine in essence. I thought I had it covered. Yeah. Um, so, but I didn't understand that there was a black feminist organization yeah. in the 70s. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that, of course, these women were talking about all these issues and in fact were pro-choice. Yeah. And that we could and mm-hmm. should be talking about that um, as a community of folks. And and if we did more of that, I, I really think that... Um, Roe v. Wade wouldn't be hanging by a thread hmm. as it is now. So mm-hmm. when you wrote your book, what was the impetus behind it with regard to the work that you've been doing around healing, the work that you were doing um, with Along Walk Home? Because I think the book was written in 2011, 2012, yeah, somewhere so, around there. Oh, so Sites of Slavery. So mm-hmm. I would say I'm working on a book on the color purple now oh, okay. and then on Nina Simone. So those also come out of Along Walk Home. But mm-hmm. I would say for Sites of Slaves, that was my dissertation. Um, but it does come out of being a survivor. And then in many ways, um, I remember having a job interview and they were like, how does your work with the Long Walk Home uh, impact your book, Sites of Slavery? And it's so I can give you a very clear answer. So um, I'm an undergrad and every year in the mid 90s, there's like a new novel on slavery that's coming out. And most famously and before that, though, of course, was Toni Morrison's Beloved. And so you're seeing all these characters dealing with flashbacks and trauma and and so I'm also, you know, reading these novels because uh, they're really different than the slave narratives from the 19th century um, because you have characters like being pulled back into time and um, having to confront this this founding trauma. So I'm having my own flashbacks. I'm going to therapy. I'm reading these novels. And I and I the question that I had in undergrad that I took with me to grad school was like, what happens when you don't let a people heal? from a trauma, right? If slavery is this founding Mm -hmm. sin and this founding trauma, Mm -hmm. and you go from slavery to segregation within a a period of like 1865 to 1876, right? Um, And then 1896 is when Plessy Ferguson gets passed. What happens when people are not allowed to mourn when they're not allowed to grieve and what happens when a nation is not allowed to grieve. And so to me, it was clear that African-American artists and intellectuals kept on returning to this founding trauma because it kept on coming back. It's like in the DNA of American society. And so I was really curious as an intellectual, but passionate as a citizen to understand why there was so much focus on slavery um, in the 90s and the 2000s. And now we see it again, like ta Coates, I think, in his latest novel, um, Colson Whitehead, we see a resurgence of slavery in African-American art again. So I guess that's where it came from. And then I think when my question to the interviewer was like, I think I dare to write about dance, um, Bill Jones or visual culture like Kara Walker or photography like Carrie Mae Weems in my book because of Along Walk Home. Like, I don't know if I would have had the vocabulary or the confidence to cover so many art forms if we in real time weren't trying to tell the story of surviving rape with all those art forms. So to me, like, you know, I always say that people's dissertations are like veiled autobiographies. So like if you, in grad school, I'm like doing this work and we're traveling the country to talk about healing and from trauma. And then I'm writing this dissertation, trying to talk about healing from trauma. And so they're just in conversation with each other. So that's a great question. Usually people don't ask me that question. So So let's switch gears here a little Mm -hmm. bit and talk about some of the opportunities that you've had to share stories and to lift up the work in the current environment. So I know, Mm -hmm. for instance, you wrote uh, an op-ed piece uh, together in January, Mm -hmm. right, around um, R. Kelly. And it was Mm -hmm. along the lines of, it's about time that the Me Too movement has, again, focused on Black women, because that is how Mm -hmm. it started. And of course, we lost some of that. Uh, People didn't know that Actually, it was Tawana Burke who coined Me Too. We saw it in the media when white women activists, celebrities started to push it forward. And, and I would say that certainly in the, as it became clear that they didn't coin that phrase, I did see women actually giving credit where credit was due. Yeah. Why did you feel it was important to write the, the op-ed piece for the New York Times? Well, I think we were doing a lot of... Sh- I mean, that's just, this is this is the work we've been waiting for this moment for a while, right? Absolutely. And we saw mm-hmm. um, our twentieth anniversary for Soars. What we wanted to do, we decided to bring Tarana um, here before we wrote that op-ed. Before the Surviving R. Kelly actually came out, um, we brought Tarana to Chicago for a town hall with Black girls here in Chicago. Uh, we felt like Chicago. This is where our work is being done. We already were talking about uh, as an organization and um, uh, R. Kelly. I think the year before we we canceled the first R. Kelly with um, UIC. 
the, the first concert um, in in his hometown. Um, and uh, we did a Mew R. Kelly campaign here. Um, the missing and murdered rates of black girls, uh, the sex trafficking. And so we knew we wanted this conversation here. We wanted this huge moment um, that not only was it founded by a black woman, but it was founded for a black girl, mm -hmm. right? She was inspired um, in Alabama for a young girl who's telling her story, but she didn't know what to say. And she really wanted to say the word to me too. So those two things as black women about a black girl survivor and us now doing this program called Girlfriends and knowing and holding all these stories, how could we bring not only the movement, but the resources and the energy that was being centered, how could we bring that to Chicago? How could we bring that to these young girls and know that this was about them? So we did this town hall um, in uh, November. Um, and, uh, you know, and after that town hall, we also then did small groups with young people talking about Me Too. A lot of our young people did not know, um, not our people, but young people in general, when they were teaching it, they did not know what Me Too was, and they did not know who Toronto was. And so we were like, oh my gosh, like this is a huge movement that's happening. And they were having these lived experiences. They were talking about sexual assault. They were talking about how we can't talk about this in their homes or their schools. And so we started doing these, 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 these talks. And so when we saw Surviving R. Kelly um, really start to, uh, you know, and we worked as consultants on that film uh, with, with Dream Hampton and when Dream was making it. And so um, Alama Cone provided like, uh, support on staff for the for the survivors of that film, um, but it, we saw the direct impact of now our communities talking about sexual assault. We got calls from people we never got calls from before. We got calls from nail salons on the south side of Chicago asking to talk about sexual assault in their communities. We got um, you know uh, just a real visibility. And we knew how do we how do we hold this moment? How do we you know? And how do we leverage our resources? And so that's the birth, I think, of the of the op-ed came about. How do we make sure that this? We know that this is not a moment that's guaranteed. We have never seen this, and we also know that because of that, that's allowed all of those those acts of R. Kelly to exist, right? The the invisibility of of these young girls to allow that kind of history and, you know, um, to have happened. Um, I talk about with R. Kelly, I feel like it is about R. Kelly, but it's really about how R. Kelly was able to get away with so, For so long, so long, For you so know, long. You, being in Chicago, it's, unbelievable. Uh, it's just, and, and what did he get away? He got away with everything that we've learned about sexual violence. I mean, kidnapping, sex trafficking, domestic violence, like it's all of that child marriage in the United States. I mean, every single thing he was able to get away with, right? And so I thought if we focus on that, we like really impact R. Kelly and bystanders, right? Schools involvement. We were also having the, the still the Chicago public schools uh, crisis and sexual violence. Um, all these things were like working on all these same times. I thought if we focus on that, then and, and all those things that really what R. Kelly represents then we really are able to deal with some real things in, the, in, in this country around sexual violence and black girls and women. And what was the reaction to the op-ed piece? Oh, that's, that's good, I think. Mostly good. Um, um, yeah. yeah. I mean, the majority <laughs> were like, so just like, yeah. yeah. I mean, we, I, actually, uh, yeah, I think, I mean, very different than actually shutting down his concert. Uh, here in Chicago, so I, I think because that, some time had passed too. Yeah, um, and a documentary, had, and a documentary, documentary and right. yeah, because I think that was the first time that Alama Comey even got any kind of like we had to block people and and social media was uh, when we okay. uh, mm -hmm. did the concert. Like or Kelly then became like a little more visible. It already was existing, but came really high. So the the op ed, I mean, people are teaching about it. Other, I think, organizations felt heard and seen. And I think there was like two, uh, in addition to like yeah. highlighting uh, the central role that black girls should and have played in Me Too, showing a longer history of black women organizing against sexual assault. I think sometimes these are like, as you were talking about, um, you know, growing up reading Essence and Ms. And then there's this history of black women organizing against sexual assault that obviously goes way back to Absolutely. slavery, right. but then more. We don't. Recently, yeah, like yeah. Rosa Parks being an anti-sexual assault activist. 
Uh, so kind of like wanting to highlight that history, like that creates the possibility for something like Surviving R. Kelly, like Dream Hampton and Lifetime's documentary doesn't come out of a vacuum. It comes off of lots of other women um, organizing around these issues. And the other thing is, uh, and, and to quote such a woman, Loretta Ross, who um, is the- I know Loretta. Uh, Loretta, yes. For I'm sure you, Yes, for reproductive justice mm-hmm. warrior uh, who, yes. coined, who helped coin that term. Uh, we were on a panel mm-hmm. uh, a couple two years ago at National Women's Studies Association, looking at this long history of uh, women in, uh, at the black women at the forefront of the anti-sexual violence movement. And she said something that was really profound to us. Um, mm-hmm. She said, you know, in the 1980s, there was this blossoming of black women's voices uh, with like Alice Walker and the anti, you know, mm-hmm. the founding of so many different organizations um, and so many different publications. And she did, they didn't realize then that the m- moment wouldn't last. And now we're in another moment where black women, I think it's kind of unparalleled how many ways in which black women are being recognized, still having to like work four times as hard, but but being at least sometimes recognized when you do work four times as hard, um, that this moment is even more significant, not significant, more widespread. And so I guess that was a challenge, yeah. you know, like, and that's what we talked about in the R. Kelly piece, like, you know, this may not last. And so because this moment may not last, then we have to get as much done now as possible. have to leverage it, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. highlight it, push it forward, make sure as many people as possible know about it. Yep. I, I just felt um, somewhat, I guess, vindicated when the documentary mm-hmm. was out because, yeah. mm-hmm. you know, I've worked on issues around violence against uh, yeah. women and girls for many years as well. And, and, you know, really was frustrated about, so what can we do besides supporting those organizations that work on these issues? You know, when we go to a party, we would absolutely say, please do not play any of that music. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I would get cards from people, um, because I do, um, I'm a documentary filmmaker and they would want me to come and work in their studio and they would list their clients and they'd have R. Kelly on it. So that card would go out the (laughs) window, but it felt as though to the, I think the point of the op-ed that it was being seen and heard in a way that all of us already knew, but it was being lifted up in a way that it had never been lifted before. And um, yeah, very significant. So thank you. I think it was a really, really important uh, op-ed piece uh, to share. This is serious, hard work. (laughs) Where do you find joy outside of this work <laughs> well visiting my sister in chicago apparently is one place <laughs> yeah i have two young kids so mm-hmm. i have a seven-year-old daughter named seneca and a four-year-old son named sydney so they are sites and vessels of joy and also hard work um but i do think like it's really nice to have these two people um who really run our house so it's interesting because they have two type a parents and yet, uh, <laughs> you know, as, as parenting can go sometimes, uh, they really rule the roost. So it's, they're great. I'm happy to have them as part of our tribe and part of our family. Um, but I guess other, I'm, I, you know, anyone knows me, I'm an addict of television. I watch thousands of shows and they're actually really, really sad shows, but I get great joy in watching all <laughs> sorts of, uh, police procedurals on television uh, from all over the world, which is kind of weird given my politics, but I came into reading, really reading like Nancy Drew and Agatha Christie. Yeah. So that's always in me. Um, So that's another, and then I just, uh, yoga. I I, I think my next chapter um, will be being a yogi of sorts, which seems like so daunting because I think I'm like, oh, that's so much work to become a yogi. But so these are different areas of my life. I think that give me joy and give me, um, moments to retreat and, and, and recharge and recharge and art really is kind of like even though we're like oh it's it ignites yeah. us it makes us politically engaged it also is a beauty right um and being seeing beautiful things uh and reading beautiful words and listening to beautiful sounds is still like probably my first go-to so I've been really um working on bringing joy into the space so the workspace um as a actual practice, um, uh, so in in many ways. So with the young people I work with, how can like self care be like a component of our work? Um, how can we bring back to young people who may be adultified at a very young age? At uh, you know, uh, young girls are adultified at the age of five. How can we bring back play to them? Um, double dutch, uh, just embracing 
dance and twerking or double dutch, like all sorts of things that come to us, right? Mm-hmm. Like um, how can we put that part in the practice of social justice movement, right? Um, so self-care. I think, yeah, self-care, mm-hmm. like is an integral part of it, but like not just say self-care, like a lot of people just, you know, mm-hmm. but actually like really believe in it. I think, you know, me as an art therapist um, has really created that, like just joy and laughter in this space. Um, community is really important. Um, as well. And I think um, it's something Samish also talks about. Uh, for us, it's it's also doing different things, right? So like this is one part, but also like not having this your whole life. So having different um, different different movement spaces are also like I think really give me joy. Like going and doing this work and being in a nonprofit sector, but then also then being able to do like uh, – the art, um, art space or, you know, you know, just like, just kind of bouncing around spaces, different space, like the black feminist space, like they're all different spaces. And I think like not just being this one dimension, like also allows me, um, joy. Yeah. In addition to really having this Mm. work, um, visible all over the, the country and the world, you've had a lot more support from celebrities. And I recently saw that you, we're doing some work with Janelle Monet. Tell us how that came about. Yeah, that was a pretty amazing uh, event. Uh, Janelle Monet um, was here in Chicago, and she wanted to honor uh, local organizers and artists that are doing work in the community. And she selected four, and I, I was um, nominated actually through the Chicago Foundation for Women, um, who who nominated me, and one of the other. Uh, Awardees was uh, Amanda Williams um, for her work, and it was just a beautiful night. The theme was about uh, kind of em- like Janelle Monet, like imagining the future, um, and it was held at the MCA. And she, it was a, a dinner party essentially with fifty guests, um, and it was this whole like intimate, feature- yeah, and in- yeah, yes. yeah, very intimate. I could I had one plus, which was telling me she was in town, so it was kind of beautiful to share this moment with her. Um, and it was kind of ironic because the day before this uh, beautiful future event, we had a whole theme this summer about imagining the future for our young people. So it was like, wow, this is like perfect because. I just had an exhibition done by young girls where we spent all summer because um, part of the thing I thought was like we have been spending our whole organization career talking about ending violence against women and girls, but we have not yet imagined what that future would be like if we achieved our goal. And so we spent the whole summer kind of dreaming with our young people of what what future and they said uh, certain, you know, they were like no abortion ban or the future is beautiful, is, it has, is colorful or um, no gender. Uh, you know, they were coming up with all these different ways of really being free and liberated. And they made art about it. It was just, just pretty beautiful um, to, to, to weave into like Afrofuturism with our young people. And then the next day I go to this event done by Janelle Monet, who is the like, you know, Afrofuturism person. Um, and to have this really intimate dinner to really about connecting other people together um, and, and dreaming what that world we could achieve be like. And I think I just want to hold on to that Absolutely. because I think those are the things that like motivate you to kind of as you're in keep the going. present to like, mm-hmm. yeah, keep on dreaming. Yeah. And, and how do you go from um, the work that you're doing and being a part of the academy to writing liner notes for John Legend. How does, how does that come about? Yeah, I mean, I think part of what Along Walk Home has given me is like, again, really being to deeply dive into this idea of art and activism. So, you know, I was a professor at Penn for 10 years mm-hmm. um, and it was a wonderful experience and I was a more traditional literary critic. I don't know if my colleagues would say that, but I would say that. And now that I took this job at Rutgers, um, I'm doing, formally doing art and activism um, as an, an initiative and an institute that I've built there. So I guess, you know, the way in which Sherazad's like a professional artist and an art therapist and an ED, because my three hats would be being a creative writer, um, being an activist, and now also being a, an academic administrator, which is like, you know, we're on parallel tracks because we obviously came from the same house and we're always in conversation with each other. Um, but the biggest shift for me too, I think was becoming a creative writer, um, and, uh, still a cultural critic, but shaped trying to create different audiences and speak to different audiences. So, 
I don't know. Maybe you you can you can you understand what we're talking about having these multiple hats. I do. (laughs) You know, or you're like an administrative, like artist, filmmaker, (laughs) organizer. So they feed Mm, off each other. Uh, But I do think it's like you know I tell my students sometimes like it's not easy. It's just like you know because you're trying to like do well in these different spaces, Um, and so Mm. you have different uh, standards per space, right? Like what makes you a good administrator is not necessarily what makes you a good writer. Being a good writer means spending a lot of time by myself, not talking to anybody, having the phone off and being a good administrator is like the exact opposite of that engaging Mm -hmm. meetings. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, just trying to find all of that, trying to to find the balance, Yeah, the balance, which I don't think, I I don't know if that really exists. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) You're like shaking your head. No. Um, (laughs) so we're going to take a quick break. Um, we have been, uh, having an extraordinary conversation um, with uh, the founders of A Long Walk Home, uh, Sherazad Tillett and Salamisha Tillett. And we're going to be right back. You're listening to Gathering Ground. Hi, everyone. Thanks so much for joining me on Gathering Ground. We want to hear from you. If you have any questions about your work in nonprofits or any of the topics that we've covered here on Gathering Ground, send them on in. Send them to mary at gatheringgroundpodcast.com. That's mary at gatheringgroundpodcast, all one word, dot com. We look forward to hearing from you. So welcome back, everyone. You're listening to Gathering Ground, and today we've been speaking with the co-founders of A Long Walk Home, uh, Shaharazad Tillett and Salamisha Tillett. And we are going to move into one of our favorite sections, questions from the audience. Yeah. So we're going to start with Jackie. Uh, Jackie states, I was at a lunch presentation with my supervisor this week on the future of philanthropy, including equity and inclusion. And one of the panelists was a Latina philanthropic leader and talked about living in Chicago's Pilsen neighborhood her entire life. At the end of the event, when the uh, gentleman who was emceeing the event was at the mic, he waxed poetic about a restaurant that used to be in the community and talked about how everyone would go there. Citizens, police officers, immigration officers, legals, illegals. Obviously, this language is not okay, given that no person is illegal and that this language is dehumanizing. Hmm. Should I say something to the organizers? Oh, I see. These are real questions. Yes. Of the organizers of the event. Yes. The organizers of the event. Uh, yeah. It's like weird that we're still using these terms actually, or people, I mean, I understand why some people um, who are trying to uh, alienate or scare or demonize folks use it. But in general, I think this person was trying to sound like they, this communal atmosphere. So, I don't know. I mean, I first started, it was like the 90s when I was in college and I had a professor, um, Ines Salazar, and she taught a class um, on Chicano and African-American women writers. And so it's then that I started learning, like, how, not simply that language hurts, but the way in which undocumented versus illegal alien, right? So that's in the 90s. So I'm still, like, surprised that we're having certain mm. debates about language. Mm. But at the same time, we're in a deeply uh, traumatizing moment and a deeply uh, partisan moment around issues of immigration and national belonging. And so it's not unsurprising that we have to have these debates since there are people who are committed to uh, deeply dehumanizing individuals who are seeking um, uh, sometimes asylum or sometimes an alternative life here in the United States. But yes, I would say that, yes, you probably would want to say something to the um, organizers of the event because I don't know if they meant to harm, um, but the risk of harm is there. So absolutely, and I think whenever you can call, we we have a we have a saying uh, about our work that we want to call people in, not call people out. Yeah, meaning that mm-hmm. we want to, you know, we're not going to get anywhere with shaming people, mm-hmm. and we will shut down conversation. But we also understand that for real change to happen, as mm-hmm. you know, there's going to be some discomfort. And so um, it really is about the way you do it. Yeah. Right. And anything you want, you want to add? No. Um, I mean, I think, yeah, I think that the calling in, I'm, I'm kind of inspired from your uh, last podcast too, and how racial justice training has impacted me um, in terms of learning about white supremacy, mm-hmm. really. Right. So how people of color could really also learn a lot about um, uh 
get a lot from racial justice training if it's done right and correctly. Um, I think that was part of my uh, leadership development work uh, was having uh, racial equity work with uh, in, in specific trainings around that. So I think there's always invitations to like uh, learning about what does community building really look like um, in, in that kind of framing. Great. So here's a question from Allison. I have been working in nonprofits for eight or nine years. And as I start to think about my future in the sector, I wonder whether the road I want to be on is one towards an executive director role. Hmm. I have a resume that is fairly well-rounded, programmatic work, development, staff, supervision, DEI implementation, but I haven't heard great things about being an ED. I'm an Asian woman <laughs> in my late 40s, if that helps. Any thoughts? Well, um, you know, I... I <laughs> Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of actually articles even just talking about the burnt out of, of particularly of women of color in executive director positions. Um, and so I know that there is a lot of, um, you know, um, negative uh, things or articles or um, research out there. But I also think it's also it could be very rewarding um, if you're doing it correctly. And I think it's really important to make sure um, that you have the right community. Also, just I'm going to plug again, just like leadership development uh, work that you guys are doing, you know, and executive coaching mm -hmm. um, really plays a really great role. Um, I've had uh, Cultivate here in Chicago. I was part of that. Um, also part of Movement. Which is a mentoring program oh, yeah. that was um, funded by... Um Crossroads Fund, Chicago Foundation for Women, and the Woods, Woods Fund. Woods Fund, yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. Um, that were really built on uh, the leadership of executive directors or just leadership teams in nonprofits, particularly for women of color. And to have that kind of support um, to really uh, within philanthropy, but also in the nonprofits. And so what I got from it was really like a... Um, it grounded me in a network um, of, of women of color who are doing this work here locally. Um, I've also been involved in another um, program called Movement to End Violence, um, which is funded by the Novo Foundation, which is a, uh, a national program that supports people who are in, doing work around uh, ending violence against women and girls. And so I feel like those two, um, those kind of networks really... Uh, help us share practices and um, also resources and techniques and tools um, to kind of really create the foundations to kind of like help support you doing this work. So I think I would just advise to talk to different people um, who have been in this position and what works, what doesn't work um, uh, for them as you are entering in this field. It can be very isolating yeah. to be right the bottom line in an organization mm -hmm. and when I am talking often to women of color executive directors yeah, and I ask, what are you doing to take care of yourself? Often they start crying because yeah, no one's ever so asked them much, and they yeah. don't even know how to get to that point. One of the things we talked about uh, in our last episode was about this idea of building bench. Mm, yes. Yes. And I love that. Yes. I love that. That's and it's not, like calling the bench. Yeah. Yes. Uh -huh. And how do you build bench? Yeah. I also sometimes I talk that. about having your own personal board of directors, mm -hmm. right? Not the one for your organization, mm -hmm. but who are those folks that you can go to? Mm -hmm. Well, you know, it will be confidential yeah. and you can just be yourself and yeah. get the support you need. Yeah. Um, because as you know, when you are in an environment, being the first, being the only, only. Um, mm -hmm. it, there's so many other things that we carry with us mm -hmm. that I would say, particularly again for women and women uh, who are not women of color, don't really understand uh, yeah. that frame at all. And so it is important that women can mm -hmm. um, come together with mm -hmm. women who look mm -hmm. like themselves at the end of the day yes. and get that support. And so it sounds as though Allison um, doesn't even know that that exists. Yeah. And might consider being an executive director um, even more seriously if she knew that there were supports out there. And there mm -hmm. are, Allison. I hope you're listening. So thank you so much oh, for uh, joining thank us. Before we close, one oh. quick question. Oh, yeah. What are you looking forward to in this new year of 2020? Tell me one thing that you hope you will accomplish or you will experience in 2020. Oh, so it's not about the nation. Okay. No, good. it's about no, us. About you. <laughs> <laughs> well, I would like to, uh, I have a book called In Search of the Color Purple, the story of Alice Walker's masterpiece that comes out in 2020. 
um, which I'm very excited about. Well, I hope you will come back and talk. About I that will. With us. And I have to finish another book called All the Rage, uh, The World Nina Simone Made in 2020 as well. So I have these two projects, these two women who have been occupying my imagination for a very long time and have uh, inspired me to be who I am. So I'm excited about that. So we're very similar because we are really our sisters. Um, <laughs> that we think in projects <laughs> for 2020. Um, so in 2020, I'm hoping um, to continue to work on my um, art projects, um, which are about black girlhood and photograph. Um, I'm very excited about this because uh, it, one of the projects I'm working on is called The Send-Offs. Um, and so I wait for a prom season to kind of begin where I photograph black girls in Chicago um, getting uh, ready for a prom and sending them off in their rites of passage. Um, and so it's just a beautiful moment to, that I think is, hasn't been as documented as it should be, but it's uh, this beautiful moment of, um, of young girls really, uh, I feel like it's a, its own uh, feminist project too because these young girls are oftentimes going to prom by themselves now. And... Um, Everyone that they use are often black women in terms of designers and chair decorators or costume and uh, uh, makeup artists. Um, well, you have to let yeah. us know when that's available yeah, as well because so, we yeah. want to talk about it and yes. we want to have oh, to make yeah, sure sorry. people come and see it. Yes. It sounds lovely. Thank you both <laughs> so excited. much for joining <laughs> us here on Gathering Ground. Um, a long walk home. Uh, can be you can find more information about a long walk home at alongwalkhome.org. Um, this is Gathering Ground. You've been listening to Shahrazad Tillett and Salamisha Tillett, and um, we look forward to having you back again very soon. Thank, Thank you, you for so having much. us. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you. We are so pleased to let you know that you can now find Gathering Ground on iTunes, in addition to SoundCloud, Spotify, Google Podcast, Stitcher, Breaker, and Radio Public and at GatheringGroundPodcast.com. I'm Mary Morton, and this has been another episode of Gathering Ground.